Welcome to Banyan Books, Branches of Wisdom. Celebrating the joy of bright ideas and heartful lifelong learning. Branches of Wisdom is a series of intimate conversations with the world's most influential authors and visionaries. We explore spirituality and the human mind, ecology and culture. Most episodes are recorded with a live audience. You can join our live events and submit questions to your favorite guests. Check out our upcoming schedule at banyan.com. Since 1970, Banyan Books has been a rich oasis at the crossroads of wisdom and philosophy, offering resources for humanity's evolving paths. We're a locally owned, independent bookstore in the heart of Vancouver's Kitsilano neighborhood. Visit us in person or shop online at banyan.com. Please subscribe follow, like, and leave your reviews for the podcast. And now, enjoy. Hello, everybody. I'm your host, Ross McKeechee. Welcome to another special event with Banyan Books. Today, I'm delighted to have Brad Warner as our special guest. Brad Warner is the author of The Other Side of Nothing, which is his new book, and numerous other titles, including Letters to a Dead Friend about Zen, Don't Be a Jerk, and Hardcore Zen. A Soto Zen teacher, he is also a punk bassist, filmmaker, and popular blogger who leads workshops and retreats around the world. In addition to his books, his writing appears in Lion's Roar, Tricycle, Buddha Dharma, and Alternative Press. He lives in Los Angeles, where he's the founder and lead teacher of the Angel City Zen Center. Today, Brad Warner is with Banyan Books in conversation about his new book, The Other Side of Nothing. Here it is, The Zen Ethics of Time, Space, and Being. It's a really wonderful book. I encourage everybody to check it out. A little bit about the book. In the West, Zen Buddhism has a reputation for paradoxes that defy logic. In particular, the Buddhist concept of non-duality, the realization that everything in the universe forms a single integrated whole, is especially difficult to grasp. In The Other Side of Nothing, Warner untangles the mystery and explains non-duality in plain English. That's one of the things I actually love the most about Brad's work is the plain English part of it. And he's got such a unique voice that is, is really refreshing. To Warner, this is not just a philosophical problem. Non-duality forms the bedrock of Zen ethics. And once we comprehend it, many of the perplexing aspects of Zen suddenly make sense. Drawing on decades of Zen practice, he traces the interlocking relationship between Zen metaphysics and ethics, showing how a true understanding of reality and the ultimate unity of all things instills in us a sense of responsibility for the welfare of all beings. If you'd like to learn more about today's guest, Brad Warner, and his work, you can visit him online at hardcorezen.info. That's hardcorezen.info. Banyan Books community, join me, please, in a warm welcome to Mr. Brad Warner. Hi, Brad. Hello. Thanks a lot for joining us. Yeah, glad to be here. I watched a video that you had posted when... Um, when the book had not quite come out actually. And you, you said uh, 
uh, I understand the original book idea that you had, you're working on a book about UFOs or aliens. Wow. Yeah. 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 What was that all about? And then what, what made you take a turn towards this book? Well, that's a, that was a totally different idea. I, I just had been uh, thinking about aliens a lot and seeing and, and thinking about what I could do on that subject. I'm not, I'm not, you know, a, a true alien believer or any, any of those things, but I think that the, the, the idea that there's, uh, that there's other intelligent life forms out there in the universe is interesting. And then there's some interesting stuff in Buddhism, in traditional Buddhism, that might indicate that uh, the the ancient Buddhists also believed in something similar to that, it, because their their concept of, you know, usually gets relegated to oh, this is the Buddhist idea of angels and and gods. But if you actually look at it, it's their their descriptions are much more detailed, and so it's kind of like our maybe they're talking about something something else, you know, something we could relate to in our own time. And I had this idea to write about that, and I worked on it but I just couldn't get anywhere I was uh I was I was just kind of um you know I had a few chapters but I wasn't I, I wasn't going and I just hit on the idea the completely different idea that uh, ethics was uh, what what I should write about which is, is an absolutely uh, different sort of topic you know so it doesn't even relate to what I originally started writing about so there's not there's not a nice little trajectory and the reason I, I decided to write about ethics is I felt like a lot of people, this has probably been going on a long time, but people people want to be good. You know, people want to have a, a learn to live an ethical life. But I think what a lot of people do when they're searching for the right sort of ethical framework to live their lives by, they end up instead joining movements and, and uh, reciting slogans and kind of trying to fix a, a very rigid um, framework for their thinking and for their actions, you know, trying to kind of really box everything in. Whereas the Buddhist approach to ethics is, is totally different. Uh, it's, my teacher said something like no rule is our rule but that would make you think well just anything is acceptable that's not also not the case uh, with buddhists there are there are what we we call the precepts which are the uh, um which are very uh, some of them are, are absolutely the same as the ten commandments and some of them are, are quite different but but it's the same kind of ideas don't steal don't lie don't kill don't don't cheat you know there's certain things like that that are that are common in both systems but the approach is is not the idea that god forbids these actions and and you'll get punished if you if you go against god's will it's more the sense that if you want to have the best sort of life if you want to have a life that's comfortable and good and happy uh you should uh, you should follow a system of ethics and the reason you should follow the system of ethics is much related to what you mentioned in the intro this idea of non-duality that everything is fundamentally the same there's a kind of oneness to the universe so anything you do to harm somebody else is something you're doing that that will harm you so it's almost a selfish sort of approach it's if you want to if you want to have a good life yourself 
don't do bad things to other people. That's kind of the bottom line to it. Um, and and I thought that was a something interesting. And then I ended up writing three hundred and how many pages? Like this is one of my longest books. I, I don't know if it's longer than Sit Down and Shut Up, but this this and and my book Sit Down and Shut Up three hundred eighty six pages. Right, my longest. So I hope that isn't intimidating to people. But I heard you know, people if, like long books. So. <laughs> yeah, some people like longer books, some like shorter. But I'll say this: the book is incredibly engaging. It's very autobiographical in nature. And I loved how you wove together your story with stories of your teachers and all these other influences in, in the Buddhist and Zen Buddhist tradition as well. And, and then people outside of the, the Zen Buddhist or Buddhist traditions as well. Yeah. Yeah. The idea of doing that was I I'd actually wanted, since I, I was a child, to, to be a writer. And I thought I would be a fiction writer, specifically a science fiction writer, which also ties into the idea of doing a book on aliens. But um, one of the things I decided to do is when I introduced any person, I would introduce them the way a novelist would introduce a character. Well, not exactly the same way, but I'd, I'd try to introduce them as if I was a novelist uh, and I was introducing a character. So anytime I referenced somebody who I knew was going to be referenced um, a, a number of times throughout the book, I'd try to give the reader a sense of, of who that person was, at least as much as I know about that person. So, yeah. Right. And maybe uh, there's, a, there's one, one character or a couple of characters in particular I'd like to touch on as we go along, but yeah. I, I wanted to, to first kind of, to just give our audience context. And so that they're really getting the essence here. I thought I'd, I'd share a, two quotes from the start of the book as kind of an entry point, if that's okay with you. Okay. So, Basically, my, my take, and I think I've got it right, the essence of the book is really that whatever we do to another, we're doing to ourselves and to the entire universe. And then on the, on the very first page of chapter one, Brad, you write, and this is, this is all it says on the first page, you are the universe, but you keep punching yourself in the face. So stop doing that. That's all there is to say, the end. <laughs> then of course you have what like we just said 386 pages after that where you explain what you mean by that i'm wondering if you can speak there's there's a concept that you talk to in regards to non-duality and ethics and you say that when we're just starting out on this path you're taught to start acting like an enlightened person long before you ever get to anything like enlightenment I think that might be something to us to start with. Can you talk about that process as we as we get on the path and how do we start to act like an enlightened being long before that? Yeah, well, that, yeah, it gets into the whole idea of what is an enlightened being, but maybe I'll, I'll um, leave that aside for the minute. Uh, okay. I think when I first started this, that's that's the main thing I can relate to is I was you know, part of the punk rock scene in Northeast Ohio. And I, I say this so often that I sort of, uh, I'm, getting, I'm tired of hearing my own voice sometimes when I talk about this part of it. But this was, you know, I was in my late teens and I was really interested in that. And the, the punk rock scene that I was part of was really influenced by mainly this band called Minor Threat who were in Washington, D.C. And they had 
uh, this whole philosophy behind their their music, which was uh, they called it straight edge. So so no no drinking, no drugs, no um, what did they call a meaningless sex? I think is what they called it. Um, you know, it was almost like a, a monk's ethics, if if you think about it. And and they shaved their heads just like Buddhist monks too, which I thought I never. Well, I did shave my head once to become a monk, but back in those days, I didn't. Uh, I didn't shave my head, but everybody else in the band did. And th there was that kind of strong sense of 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 ethics and. The there wasn't really an idea about why we wanted to be ethical. We just thought that was the thing to do. Um, and when I encountered Buddhism, I was a student at Kent State University in Ohio, and I took this class called Zen Buddhism. And I I thought, well, this is the whole this is the the thing that I've been working on in the punk scene, but it's it's taken to the to the next level or maybe the ultimate level. You know, they've they've gone all the way with this rather than than what I felt was the the failings of the punk rock movement was it didn't uh, it didn't follow its own logic to its to to its own logical conclusions. They they just sort of stopped short of that. I felt, and when the ethical stuff in Buddhism was was presented. To me, I, it felt um, it felt restrictive, and it, it feels like a bunch of rules that you're you're supposed to follow. But the the idea is that the enlightened ones, you know, these sort of mythical, semi mythical people that we look up to, uh, behaved this way. You know, they 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 had this this ethical system. And the Buddha, his first sermon was the the noble eightfold path. I always get this wrong, uh, and it's a it's an ethical uh, system of of life. So obviously, this was really really important. And but the idea of enlightenment that we touched on, kind of sometimes this gets lost when Buddhism is presented in the West because it it's sort of uh, it's it's often gets presented in a way that it's not that seems unrelated to this that enlightenment is something that happens to you where you get i don't know i don't know how people uh, really conceive of it I, I can say maybe i conceived of it as this you know download of all knowledge or something like that you know you just get you suddenly know everything and 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 you can behave in the right way because you know everything about everything and you have the you know full understanding of life the universe and, and everything as douglas adams said um and 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 that and that the goal of the practice is to have this experience this amazing experience uh, you know, something like you might get on an acid trip or something, you know, something that people claim from that. But it's actually, I think, more foundational to, to Buddhism is, even though that is kind of part of it, this idea of this, um, this kind of moment where you get, uh, where you get um, uh, awakened, you know, to the truth. But that, that, that part of being awakened to the truth is, is behaving uh, ethically. And you can start behaving ethically before you have any sort of knowledge of it by just kind of following this this path that the buddha laid out the the thing about it is though you 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 have to be careful not to be too dogmatic about it because if you're too dogmatic and you're sticking to kind of the letter of the law you often can go wrong by um by not by by not doing what's right 
in an effort to do what's right. <laughs> you know, this is kind of the the uh, the dilemma we we find ourselves in sometimes. One thing I I, I really uh, find interesting is the different outlooks on the term God. And of course, in Zen Buddhism, there's no conception of, of God, really, I don't think. But in the book, I mean, you wrote a book called There Is No God, and He's Always With You. And then in this book, The Other Side of Nothing, you write, in one sense, God created us. In another sense, we're continuously creating God. I know yeah. God is a dirty word to some people, including lots of Buddhists, but I'm going to use that dirty word a lot. I apologize. I'm just wondering if you can clarify for our audience, what it, what's your view on this idea or concept of God? Yeah, it's one that, that I get in trouble for sometimes from, from some people because they object to it. I personally was not raised religious. So, and I, and I always like to point this out. It's not like my family were raging atheists or anything like anti-religious we were just kind of i think typical of a lot of people in, in you know i'm sure in canada and america and uh, europe and and elsewhere who just kind of gave up on religion you know they've just we were sort of vaguely protestant but we would we didn't go to church or anything you know it's just because we weren't catholic or jewish so we must be protestant i think was the thinking in, in my family but it, it, it was nothing that was really concerning so i never had kind of the baggage that a lot of people have that goes along with this idea of god and I, i'm i'm kind of glad for that because it, it didn't you know i wasn't it wasn't ever forced on me but what i find in buddhism in in the west is a lot of people come to it uh, as a as a way to kind of reject whatever god system you, you find a lot of lapsed catholics and lapsed jews in in uh, in buddhism in the west which i think is is interesting uh, you know people who are raised with a really strong you know foundation of either judaism or catholicism um, and then they they've rejected that and they don't want to hear anything about God anymore. So they get really, you know, they get really testy if you start if you start talking about God. But I, I think there's a different way to to conceive of it. The the one of the um foundational books for Westerners about Buddhism, I've forgotten the title, but it was DT Suzuki, and it was kind of something like a primer of Zen Buddhism, or, or maybe it was just called Zen Buddhism. It was published in the 1930s, and it's still in print. And I, I, I put the line in that book, there is no God, and he is always with you. So I can't remember, that was almost 10 years ago. So I can't remember it exactly, but it was something like, in in Zen Buddhism, there is no God, and there is no um, there is no God to worship, and there is no uh, heaven to which the dead are destined, or something like that. It's much more eloquent than I'm putting it. So people kind of got to this idea that oh, Buddhism is is a religion without God. In fact, maybe that that was probably one of the first descriptions of Buddhism I ran across before I ever encountered my my first Buddhist teacher, you know, in the flesh was this idea that Buddhism was a religion without God. And I was like, oh, that's interesting. A religion without a God, how do you do that? But I think if you, if you push into Buddhism a little further, it's not exactly what one would, at least what I would tend to conceive of as a religion without a God. It doesn't really reject the notion of God. And in fact, if you read certain Buddhist ideas 
in a different light, you can you can say that, oh yeah, it is kind of referring to God. There is there is a kind of sense of God, but there is no sense of you know the old white man with the big beard who sits on the throne and smites the Peloponnesians or whatever it is. That's always the joke I put I put that in like three books. And that's always my, you know, I don't know who the Peloponnesians are, but they seem to come <laughs> up, you know, and and God wants to smite them. And and I and and I'm like, but so we don't believe in that. There's nothing, there's no belief in that kind of God, but there's not this sense that the that you know, there's not this atheist sense that it's all meaningless and there's nothing to it and there's, you know, there's nothing out there. There is a there is a God in a sense of of a kind of unified something that we're all part of. But as much as God created us, we create God, you know, and that that that's a um, and not and not just in the sense of God is something we imagined and dreamed up. Most people, it seems like when they say we created God, that's what they mean. You know, it's just something a human beings dreamed up. Uh, that song, I really like that song by XTC, uh, Dear God. I don't know if you ever heard that one, but it's um, it's kind of this. So it's a really nice song, but it's a really strong rejection of of the idea of of God. Uh, but um, but it's the in that song there's this line about we created god and but that in the sense of we imagined god but there's the buddhists don't quite take it that way it's more like well okay there is a chapter by dogen who is the the uh, 13th century japanese founder of the sect of buddhism that i'm part of and the chapter that he wrote in his book shobo genzo is called inmo and inmo it Usually, people translate it as suchness or thusness, and it gets very, you know, pretty when people translate it that way. But my teacher, in his translation, just translated the word as it, you know, because that's more of the sense of what it means. It, it, or something would be another way to translate the word inmo. And this something that Dogen talks about in the chapter inmo, you're kind of going wow, that's, that's almost, he's, it's like he's talking about God, but you can't, you can't name it or describe it. There is something, you know, that is, that is the overarching sort of um, force or sense or, or origin of the universe, but, um, but it's not. <laughs> this is, this is, this goes back to aliens. Maybe this is the alien connection, because I, I put this in the first chapter of the book. I had been as part of writing that other book, I started getting into watching the TV show Ancient Aliens, which is a History Channel TV show, which is which I still love. It's it's kind of goofy, but the, you know they they just show you some you know the pyramids or the, the the Stonehenge or something, and they say, well, the traditional explanation for this is you know whatever, however they move the stones and whatever they did did, but were aliens involved, you know? And and there's a, a meme with the, the guy who's the main presenter on the show saying, I'm not saying it was aliens, but it was aliens. But he, he never actually says that in the show. But um, but he does sort of say things like that. And then I, I, I was noticing on oh, in Buddhism, you often find phrases that sound like, well, I'm not saying it was aliens, but it was aliens, you know. They, they, they contradict themselves all the time. And part of the reason they contradict themselves, the, the Buddhist writers, is because of this, of the contradictory nature of reality. So you can't pin it down. 
you know, we we try and try to pin down reality, and we you know we've done we've gotten really far in in science, and science has been wonderful. But one of the things science in its fringes tries to do is pin down reality, but you can't do it. You know, it just it's infinite regression. You just you just keep going on and on. And you never find the the uh, the final answer. At least not in in the sense that it can be expressed. You just touched on Dogen, Brad, and he's a very central figure, obviously, as the founder of the Soto Zen School, which is the tradition you're part of. Um, I wanted to touch on something out of chapter 33, which is titled Dogen's Weird Ideas About Space. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And you're you, you just mentioned uh, his book, Shobo Genzo, and there's an essay titled Koku, which I think means space. Yeah. And you, you talk about how much you love this line that he begins that essay with. And I'll, I'll give the quote. He, he starts the essay by saying, provoked by the question, what is right here? The way actualizes and Buddha ancestors emerge. So I'm just wondering if you can explain for us why, why was this line so on point for you, this, where he talks about the question, what is right here? Yeah, that that the reason is is because that was my question, and, and I and I kind of came to it fairly early on. If even if I couldn't articulate it when I was eighteen or nineteen years old, or maybe even fourteen or twelve years old, when I started kind of noticing that reality was weird, <laughs> that that this life I was living, that this thing I was. This was this was really strange, and and I was kind of baffled, and and I still remain to a certain degree baffled uh, to this day by the the fact that most of the people I interact with don't even consider this. They don't they don't you know. And I was walking around you know all day long, going, "What the hell is this?" You know, like like um, you know. Whereas they're all going and playing football or doing Dungeons and Dragons. You know, the nerds are or. or whatever they're get, getting interested in or, or cheerleading practice that's what my sister was interested in you know all the all the things that people do uh, in life just on the assumption that okay this is this is normal and we're gonna we're gonna do you know whatever we do to have fun here in in, in normal land and I was going this isn't normal at all this is weird <laughs> you know provoked by the question what is here you know I think is, is how uh, it turns out in the translation in there and that's the question that that i had like what is this and what dogan seems to imply is is pretty radical and mind-blowing if you if you take it to its conclusion which is he seems to imply that this reality appears based on that question based on the you know the the, the question exists first what the hell is this and then reality appears, which is which is bass backwards from from the way I kind of learned to understand what the world is. You know, I I, I kind of learned that I was this meat machine, the way I, I put it in the book that that uh, that existed, that kind of um, developed through evolution and and all of that, and 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 everything just came together by chance, and and here we are, and now. I think about it. 
And, and I don't think the Buddhists necessarily reject that view, but they say that that's kind of incomplete. That's a one-sided view of things. Well, you know, you can say, this is what one of the things I loved about Buddhism when I first encountered it was because I was interested in the meaning of life and I didn't have a religious background, I started looking into religions when I was like 11 or 12 years old, you know, and I, I was trying to figure it out when we lived, I lived in Africa when I was a kid in Nairobi, Kenya, maybe we can get to that, but I remember being there and uh, my friends, my, my closest friends there, the, the Kashingakis were, um, they were a family, they had a lot of kids, um, and so, uh, but they were Catholic. And I was like, oh, okay, they, they, have, they have God, they have religion. And I started looking into the traditional sort of religions. Kenya, in, in spite of a rhetoric that was uh, popular a, a few years ago, that, that Kenya was, uh, was a Muslim country that, that Obama was born in or something like that. It, it isn't a Muslim country at all. There are Muslims there, but the overwhelming majority are Christians in, in Kenya. In fact, it's, it's I would say, you know, my memories of it was it was much more faithfully Christian than the U.S. You know, people were really kind of bought into Christianity over there, I think. Uh, at least that was my impression of the major population, other than the Indians, which we could get into. <laughs> um, that was a whole other realm there. What was I even saying? Um, so, yeah, so I started looking into this, and... Um, and, and a lot of the religions that I encountered rejected science. You know, they, they were like against science. And this was uh, strong in some of the, when we moved back to Ohio and some kind of conservative Protestant churches to try to see what they were all about. And there was a strong, you know, rejection, this idea that, uh, that okay, the, the book of Genesis is the correct version of the origin of, of the world and not this stuff that kids learn about evolution. That's all bunk. You know, and and then I thought, well, maybe the Eastern religions are different. And I started hanging around the Hare Krishna movement um, a little bit and found that they rejected science just as hard as the as the Christians did. And in fact, one of the things that sort of really kind of burst the bubble with them is I was going to one of their meetings right after the space shuttle challenger disaster maybe kids in the audience don't remember that but uh, <laughs> but it was the, the space shuttle they sent up and it, and it blew up uh, uh you know i don't know like a minute after launch or something like that it was a real tragedy and uh, this Hari krishna guy you know this is like a week or two later i was going and he gave this lecture saying well the you know, the astronauts never actually landed on the moon because our scriptures say that the moon is, you know, and it had this elaborate description of the cities and, you know, the wonderful people and the stuff that live on the moon, according to, to some ancient Hindu scripture. And uh, so they couldn't possibly have landed on the moon, that, that by mistake, they landed on a different planet. And I'm just sitting there going... <laughs> Landed on a different planet, you know. Oh, whoops, I, mean, I mean, the moon's over there. Oh, geez. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Would they see the moon from that other planet if they actually <laughs> landed on the wrong one? I would think it must be at least as close as the moon. You know, obviously, this person had no, you know, no understanding. He had never been a Star Trek fan, I guess, and <laughs> never, you know, didn't understand how how really bizarre of a claim that is that they could land on it on the wrong planet and and i just thought okay but well, these guys reject science too uh the eastern religions must not be any better 
And then I encountered Buddhism and I found that they, they had no problem with science. They, they have no problem at all with it, with accepting everything that science says, but, but they will say what science says is, is not the complete picture, even though it, within the realm that it operates, it is, it's more or less correct. It's, it's, it doesn't, it doesn't uh, get to the, to the bigger questions and it can't get to the bigger questions because of the nature of, of science itself, which I thought, oh, that's an interesting way to look at it. Cause science is just, it's the, it's the, to, to a Buddhist science would be the study of cause and effect relationships in the material realm. Um, and for sure, you can say a lot about that, and you can and you can get very detailed about that, and you can understand it very completely. But the Buddhists would also say that the material realm is just one part of reality, and it's not even the biggest part. It's not even the biggest or most important part. Uh, so, so I would be going, oh, okay. So there's reality beyond what uh, what we're talking about. You know, what we're kind of living through or thinking of as as uh, as being reality, and I thought that's interesting. I want to, I want to learn more about what they have to say about that. <laughs> right, Brad, you, you touched a little bit earlier on the two main ethical systems in Buddhism: the Noble Eightfold Path and the Ten Grave Precepts. Yeah, and one of the kind of themes of the book is that these these ethical systems are based on they're based in non-duality. Yeah. I'm wondering if you can just help our audience understand, you know, first of all, just an overview, what it, what, for those who might not know, what is the Noble Eightfold Path? What are the Ten Grave Precepts? But then yeah. really, what do they have to do with non-duality? Yeah, that's a, that's a tricky one. And that's one of the reasons the book is so long, because this, this question isn't, doesn't have an easy, you know, easy, quick answer, unfortunately. But, and I, and I can never, no matter how much I've tried to memorize them, I, I can never rattle off the Eightfold Path or the Ten Grave Precepts off the top of my head. I used to keep a card in my wallet that had them listed so I could pull it out, you know, when I was lecturing and, and if I had to tell you what they were. But the, the Noble Eightfold Path is supposed to be part of Buddha's first sermon. So, so, you know, the Buddha, in case people don't know, I was kind of assumed that people know who the Buddha is and know the basic story, but I found that a lot of people don't. So the short version is he was this prince who was uh, 2,500 years ago in India, kind of got tired of the princely life and, and thought there was more, there was more to be understood in, in reality. And so you know, he went on this long arduous path of trying out just every sort of form of spirituality that existed in India in this time and a lot of those were based on the idea that th there is a pure spirit residing inside of an impure material body and what we're going to do to realize this pure spirit is just in a sense, torture the body, you know, I mean, it's almost, uh, I don't think they would actually put it that way, but that's almost what it, what it amounts to. And so, 
the Buddha did all these, the Buddha to be before he was a Buddha, he did all these practices intended to mortify his body and just, he ended up, you know, skeletal. And there's, there are statues uh, you might see in, in museums where, where the Buddha is depicted as this really, really thin, you know, in, in total contrast to the fat Buddha that's, that's you know, at Chinese restaurants, he's, uh, he's presented as this really, you know, almost skeletal being and this is this represents the you know the the nadir i guess you know the 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 point at which he finally decided this isn't working you know he 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 thought well i'm no closer to understanding the truth than i was before but i but i'm almost dead so i i better do something about that and he started eating in moderation and started finding what was called the, the middle way what he called the middle way which was not to to torture the body to to try to free the spirit and he had this awakening experience when he he hit upon this practice of just sitting you know just sitting still on a rock under a tree uh he he had this profound experience of awakening and at first he thought well nobody's going to understand this my teachers uh my teachers who I had who were teaching me this aesthetic practice uh, might have, you know, come close to understanding this, but even they didn't get it. So there's no point in teaching this to anybody. I'm just going to sit back and enjoy it for, for a while. But then he decided to, uh, he changed his mind and decided to teach. And the first thing that he taught was was this Noble Eightfold Path, which is, like I say, I can never remember all of them, but they're all in the book, right? Thinking, right speech, right action, right uh, right livelihood, what are they? You know, there's right all, effort, I've got the table right of contents. Effort. Yeah, right mindfulness, um, right action, did I say that? But there's, it's all, it's an idea, the, the, the right ideas, the, the, the doing the correct thing uh, in, in all of these aspects of life. Uh, this is how you you realize the truth, and they're basically ethics. Uh, and then later on, uh, when there was a Buddhist order established where where there were people coming to him, and he was making an effort to to teach, he spent um, let's see, he was thirty when he had supposedly had this awakening experience, and eighty when he died. So uh, was that fifty years? Yeah, fifty. I think I'm right. So for fifty years, he he ran around not ran around but he walked around india uh trying to teach people so eventually there was this large group uh, even larger than anything he could manage by himself and problems would arise among the the members of the group and him being the the leader they would go to him and say what should we do about this problem and he would make his judgment and then the the early buddhists would memorize this they didn't like writing things down which is another sort of i, I don't that's a tangent we probably don't need to go into but uh, the earliest buddhist stuff wasn't written it was memorized because i think they trusted memorization more than they trusted writing things down so they would memorize all these rules and by the end of Buddha's life, by the time he was dying, there were hundreds. I, I, there are some people who've tallied them up. I think it comes up to 400 and some rules. And as Buddha was, was dying, he told his chief attendant, listen, uh, after I die, just don't worry about the minor rules. Just pay attention to the major ones. And then this, you know, in the conversation with this guy after they 
he after the Buddha died, these guys said, well, hey, Ananda, that Ananda was his name, what did he say were the major ones? And Ananda went, uh, I forgot to ask. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's written in the scriptures, it's written much more eloquently than that, but it's it sounds like, you know, it's basically him going, oh, I forgot to ask what were the So in order to kind of figure out which were the major and minor rules, different sects of Buddhism kind of emerged with different ideas about which were the major, major and minor rules. But in the sect that became Zen eventually, they willowed, willowed, winnowed, anyway, they cut it down to 10, uh, which they believed contained the essence of all the other rules. And they kind of um, just left I've got a set of books in, in my uh, on my shelves that contain all of the rules, and they're they're fascinating to read. I've never tried to go through the books; it's a it's a three volume set, and I've never tried to go from start to finish. But every time I open it to a random page, I'll come across a rule that that's you know more often than not just weird. Um, I, I remember one that said it's it's okay to run up a tree if an elephant is chasing you. I mean, there were just you know the things that must have come up you know, that, uh, that the Buddha had to answer. And, and, you know, you can see, okay, well, yeah, we don't really need that rule <laughs> anymore, especially in places where elephants aren't running wild in the streets like they were in India in, in Buddha's day. So, um, so uh, they, they dropped all of those, but they, they came up with a list that, that, as I said, I think four out of the 10 are the same as the 10 commandments. And then there's two others that are almost the same as the 10 commandments. So, you, so it's like six out of 10 are more or less the 10 commandments. And then the others are a little bit uh, different, but they're, they're just basically rules about behavior. And my teacher wrote a pamphlet about the precepts in which he explained his vision of the precepts. And that's the one where that phrase, no rule is our rule, comes up. Did I say that earlier? I think I said you that earlier. You mentioned yeah. it. Yeah. <clears throat> that comes out of that book. But he also says, so somebody, he, he, the book, it was um, originally transcripts of lectures he did on the topic. And one of the audience members said, well, then do we have to keep the precepts? And he said, yes, you need to keep the precepts, <laughs> you know? So you say there's no rule, but you have to keep these precepts. But like I said earlier, the idea of the precepts is, is you, don't, uh, you don't fix to the letter of the law so much as the, the spirit of, of each precept. Um, and that's how we kind of uh, deal with that. There's a good question in here. Um, okay. So Brad says, thank you for the opportunity to hear you speak, Brad. And to Banyan Books, thank you for orchestrating this event. Here is my question. It concerns something akin to, quote unquote, faith in Zen and Buddhism. I have a daily sitting practice and sometimes feel as if I get a glimmer of non-duality or what I imagine a glimmer of such a thing to be. But as of yet, I have not had a direct experience of non-duality. I accept it on an intellectual level, but because I read and follow teachers of Zen, I believe or have quote unquote faith that one day I'll have such an experience. So would you call the belief in non-duality without having had a direct experience of non-duality kind of faith, especially with kind of expectation of one day having such an experience? And then he says in brackets, albeit from a shikantanza practice which is goal less yeah thank you brad and thank you banyan 
Yeah, it's a good question. I can just tell you my experience of it. I, I had two main Buddhist teachers, an American guy named Tim and a Japanese guy named Gudo Nishijima Roshi. And I felt something. I, I remember there was something about Tim, the first Buddhist teacher I ever encountered that I thought was, was significantly different from ordinary people. But in, but in every other way, he was really ordinary. You know, he had a normal job. He dressed like a, you know, anybody else in Northeast Ohio dressed. He was a fan of Frank Zappa and Star Trek. You know, he was, he was sort of a regular guy, but there was something about him. There was, there was some idea that, that he'd had, at least from my perspective, he'd had some kind of experience, some kind of direct experience of this thing that he was talking about. And so I had a certain amount of faith that that was true. And it was mostly the the word, um, there's a, an interesting thing, and I wish I could uh, remember all the details, but it was something I read in a book that was trying to describe uh, the Bible and how it was written. And they, they were talking about, the author was talking about how this word faith has changed over times or belief both of these words are kind of interchangeable and that a lot of it had to do with the influence of science and the advancements of science in which one was required to believe things that one couldn't verify for oneself you know you couldn't you couldn't uh, you, you can't um verify the atomic weight of barium for yourself or something i'm just trying to come up with something off the top of my head so you had to have a certain amount of belief that that the people who'd measured it before you were were correct and that this notion of belief as as accepting something that you could not verify for yourself was then sort of back read into the Bible. And it was saying that, that you had to have the, the faith that God existed, even though you couldn't see him. And, and But that the original meaning of the word, I think was pastesis or something like that. I don't remember. There was a Greek term that's used frequently in the Bible, meant, meant more like trust. So you trust your, your teachers, you know, and, and in a sense, they're, they're related concepts, but that's what I had. I had a kind of trust. And I remember having this conversation with Nishijima Roshi early on when I first started sitting with him and I was at a retreat and I was getting really flustered and frustrated because like the, the questioner says, I was sitting a lot and having this kind of trust that there was an experience of non-duality or, you know, that kind of thing available, but I had been already doing it for over 10 years and nothing happened, you know, no, no, no great, you know, there were little glimmers here and there, but there was no great revelation or no great awakening experience or no great understanding. And I, I was trying to express this to Nishijima Roshi in a way that, you know, that I, made sense and i remember saying to him something like i, I want to understand where the the stars and the sun and the the universe come from and he said oh you can understand that <laughs> you know just kind of very casually like oh yeah that's that's there you know like it like it was no big thing to to have an understanding the the true understanding of the you know the origin of the universe and all of that and i thought okay he says there is and 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 Tim never said anything quite like that, but, you know, I, I had that sense that 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 was there. So I just, 
you know, I kept going and kept going. And eventually, this is the dangerous part of this, the answering this question. Eventually, that did occur. Um, unfortunately, I also learned in that moment the reason that nobody ever just, in, at least in the Zen tradition, goes, okay, here's the answer, you know? And it kind of goes back to that thing I keep referencing from Doug, Douglas Adams and um, what, what's, the, what's the name of the movie? Um, <laughs> or the, the book, uh, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Uh, uh, and, and they have this, uh, they have this I, I think this is really wise of, of uh, Douglas Adams to, to understand it this way. They have this computer that calculates the, the, the answer to the question of life, the universe, and everything. That's how he puts it. And the answer the computer comes up with 40 is 42. And that, that's the answer. And, and in a sense, I don't know if Douglas Adams was uh, a student of Buddhism, but in a sense, that's kind of what the Buddhists uh, will say about it. You know, any answer that you could have to that question is not going to satisfy you. That's why 42 is a perfect sort of anal analogy. I don't know if analogy is the right word, but it's a, it's a perfect way of expressing that concept of how, of just how deeply unsatisfactory any answer you could give to that question, any answer that you can put in words um, would be. Because it's not, it's not, when you kind of get to that, the answer is, is something that is ultimately inexpressible, which sounds like a cop-out, you know, it'd be very easy. And, and I know there's people out there who do this, who go, well, the answer is inexpressible. And they don't have any idea. You know, they don't know what, <laughs> what the answer is anyway, but they, they just kind of pop out and say it's inexpressible. But the thing is, it is inexpressible. But but once you come across it, the, the analogy that I have been trying out for years is in a sense, it's like if you dropped a bowling ball on your foot, you know, if you dropped your, a bowling ball on your, on your foot 20 years ago, you would still 20 years later have no doubt at all that once upon a time you dropped a bowling ball on your foot, you know, because there would be, you know, you know, it's one of those things that would be, it would still be with you uh, all those years later, but you still couldn't really express to anybody exactly what that felt like, you know, you could try to make analogies or whatever but you can't really um, say anything about it but you're sure <laughs> you know there's there's it's you, people will ask me questions about this like well are you sure you didn't just imagine that and it wasn't just a hallucination or something like that and and I think for for all of us who who, who kind of ex experienced it for one of a better word because it's not really an experience um it's it's not like that there's no question there's 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 no question that it's real but it's but it's it's difficult to explain why you know because you, you you well why isn't there a question because you can't you can't measure it well yeah but a lot of real things you can't measure you know there's there's a, you you can't and and you can't provide evidence of it but um but it's a very real thing and and i think anybody just about anybody who practices long enough will will come to that you know, we'll, we'll come to that moment that one of the things that, that happens with a lot of people, with the people I think are actually kind of the lucky ones is that they'll have that moment without really noticing it, you know, and then maybe much, much later on reflection, they'll go, oh yeah, you know, um, 
and those are rare people and i think those are kind of the special people who really really get it deeply uh people like me have it as as sort of an experience and then there's a kind of a tendency to um like any experience like idealize it but it becomes sort of like you know you scored the winning uh goal in the football match in high school look at me you, know, you ever just wish you could go 47 back. years old and fat <laughs> but, <laughs> but i scored the winning goal yeah money. yeah like that right right okay Andrew, I hope that answered your question. That was, Brad gave a very in-depth answer there. Thank you, Brad. And thanks, Andrew, for the question. <laughs> it was great. No, it's great. And and uh, there's another question here from Stephen. And uh, Stephen's wondering, he says, hi, Brad. While discussions of quote-unquote karma are fraught with overconnecting cause and effect, nonetheless, the Buddhist ethics you refer to reminds me of a saying that I heard that still resonates that went something like this. Causing harm to others is like walking around throwing hammers in the air. <laughs> what do you think of that in relation to Buddhist ethics? Yeah, that's a good one. I'd never heard that one, but it is kind of like walking around throwing hammers in the air because they're just gonna just gonna hit you on the head. Um, but yeah, that's that's sort of a, that that's sort of the way it is. Karma is one of those difficult. Uh, subjects and one of the things I I always say when the subject of karma comes up is if you're going to talk about karma really you have to point it at yourself don't point karma at somebody else you know when pointing karma at somebody else is trying to figure out some you know you see somebody in a tragic situation and go oh well they must have done something terrible in their past life apparently I've never been to India myself but I, I've talked to a handful of people who've been there who, who've all said to me that this is kind of a societal problem over there where karma is widely believed that that there's a tendency just not to want to help anybody who's in in trouble you know not i'm sure not everybody does this but there's a kind of strong societal tendency to do this because you go well they did something wrong in their past lives and they have to atone for it and, and if they're suffering now the best thing to do is to let them suffer because uh because that's you know that's their karma coming to fruition and and you know this this leads people to to be you know kind of callous uh, but I, I think being callous is also karma creating you know so if you're kind of callous to the suffering of others then you're that's also another way to create uh, bad karma if you want to go back you know if you want to believe in that so so really you're you're, you're still better off even if that's true you're still better off helping people who are who are suffering than than just allowing them to suffer because that's you know you're that's another kind of karma you're creating there so so that's i i think uh, one of the important factors of karma that gets that gets lost and and when i talk about it when i talk about the fact that i believe in the concept of karma i really I, I only relate it to to myself. I can see it working in my life, and I sort of assume that this is universal. But I don't assume, you know, as a consequence of that belief that if somebody's having a bad time, then they deserve it. You know, that that that's kind of the wrong use of of the concept of karma. Right. Okay. Thank you. And there's a little follow up from Stephen here, which I thought would be a bit of fun. He says. 
Also, please show us what your t-shirt says. And thank you, fellow thrill seeker, for all your work. I agree, Stephen. Let's see that t-shirt. Oh yeah. Okay. Well, this is this is a dumb t-shirt. I, <laughs> I bought this in Las Vegas, uh, and it's an eagle with a feathered headdress. And and you know when I when I look at this, I think, why does an eagle need a feathered headdress? It's covered <laughs> in feathers already, you know. And it's got this kind of American flag theme to it. So I guess it's supposed to be patriotic or something. But I just I, I kind of. Uh, he, since he said thrill seekers, it means you must watch my YouTube channel because that's what I call my my. I thought I thought this is the least thrilling channel on YouTube, and I just came up with the idea one day of calling the people <laughs> who watch it thrill seekers because there's nothing <laughs> thrilling about the my YouTube uh, stuff at all. But um, but I, yeah, I I kind of I collect weird T-shirts and and they're always on display on my YouTube channel. So and I just I you know, I just found this amusing. I just thought it was really silly. I love it. I think it's great. And yeah, I noticed that on your YouTube channel, all the cool shirts you have. It's cool. Um, I just want to, we will have time for one more audience question before we close. And I just want to remind everyone, we've been speaking to Brad Warner. He's the author of his newest book of his, which is The Other Side of Nothing, The Zen Ethics of Time, Space, and Being. There it is. It's a really, really awesome book. I encourage everyone to get it. Of course, you can get it from Banyan Books, banyan.com. Our awesome producer, Jacob Steele, a big thanks to him. He's just put the links up in the chat for Brad's website, which is hardcorezen.info. And of course, the link where you can go to purchase Brad's book on the Banyan website and Banyan's general uh, link are up there as well. A huge thanks to our live audience, all of you that come out to these live events. Uh, it's so great that we have this amazing community uh, of support. Thank you so much to everybody and everyone that works at Banyan Books in the front and back and management ownership. It's, it's such a wonderful community. Um, so Brad, we, we can do one more audience question before we come to our final goodbyes. This one is from Caesar, who says, can you talk about how Dogen or the Soto tradition would view the pros and cons of communal shikantaza, pra shikantaza practice versus practicing alone? Is one favored over the other? And what are the reason, reasons, especially in the light of the current state of American Buddhism? Ooh, <laughs> this is a difficult question. Yeah, shikantaza just means just sitting, and it's the kind of practice that, that we do. And the idea is that you, it's a goalless practice. You're not trying to use your, your meditation practice to make something happen. You're, you're actually just sitting. You know, you're sitting on a cushion and you're trying to get into the pure experience of sitting still, you know, which sounds very mundane, but if you actually think about it, if you can understand the pure experience of just sitting still, that's the key to understanding everything. You know, if you can, if you can understand the simplest thing, but uh, the question is about communal practice and that's, there's, there's the three jewels in Buddhism, which are Buddha, Dharma, and Sangha. And the Buddha is Buddha, and Dharma is the teachings of Buddhism, and Sangha is the, the community. And I always, personally, I'm not, I'm not like a people person, and I'm never really comfortable with groups or anything. And, and uh, I, I, have, I have my most difficulty with the Sangha part, you know, personally, because I just never really liked it. But I, I also saw that this was a useful part of the, the practice. And I remember one time being at this uh, monastery and noticing that 
oh, this, the, the one thing we all have in common here is that we're dedicated to this practice, this Shikantaza practice, and we don't necessarily have anything else in common, like a group of friends might like the same movies and books and music and, you know, have the same politics or whatever. And uh, that's not really the case here. We're, we're, we're really, our common thing is, is this practice. And that's it. And that's where we come together. And that's the important thing. I think, I think the important thing that you do in communal shikantaza practice or whatever practice you do is, is you're dedicated to that practice. And the questioner brings up the current state of American Buddhism. And I, I, I'm going to think I know what, what he's probably talking about is the, the idea that it's, it's, it's become it's become very politicized, especially in the last few years, and it's made me extraordinarily uncomfortable with most Buddhist spaces. In fact, there's places I used to go that I just have no desire to go to at all anymore because they've just they've they've decided that that this shikantaza practice they're they are dedicated to is nowhere near as important as making sure everybody believes the same political stuff. You know, and then then they're spending much more time trying to you know make sure everybody's on the same page politically, uh, and 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 with these various social ideas and whatever else they're they're into. And I think now you got to you just got to forget that. You know, you got to you got to just leave that aside and just come together for the practice. And if you come together for the practice and everybody's dedicated to the practice, there's a lot you can learn from each other by, by seeing how, you know, seeing how other people struggle with it, seeing that there's, um, you know, one of the things, if you look, if you just come into a, a Buddhist meditation center without really ever practicing yourself, you're going to think, oh, these people are all having this wonderful experience of non-duality here, sitting on their cushions, when really the, the, the internal experience of most of them is just struggle and pain and just like, ah, how am I going to get through this day, you know, when I, when I literally have nothing to do, you know, and, and, and trying to do nothing, <laughs> You know, this is this is really hard, and and that I think is important, and and so I think um, I think the 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 difficulty is we have to continually rededicate ourselves to that and continually remind ourselves that this is what we've come together for is is for this practice, and you know who who you voted for or what you believe should be done about this that or the other thing, is really not that important. Uh, you, you can go somewhere else and, and talk about that. There's plenty of groups out there who, who want to talk about whatever issue you want to talk about. Just uh, leave that to them. And when we're dedicated to Buddhist practice, let's just be dedicated to Buddhist practice. And that, that I think is, uh, I think there's still places where that's being done. And, uh, and I hope that we can all kind of get back to that, <laughs> you know, I, I don't know, I don't know how, how uh, Buddhism in, in uh, North America and Europe and, and elsewhere is going to go ultimately, I, I hope that this is just a kind of a phase we're passing through, that, that we'll, we'll get back to being dedicated specifically just to this practice. Brad, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us. Uh, it's really been been a delight to talk to you and, and I'm a big fan of your work. And I know that the Banyan community, there's a lot of people that really love your work as well. So just much appreciation. Thank you. Appreciate it. I appreciate your appreciation. <laughs> <laughs>
Thanks for joining us for Branches of Wisdom, a podcast of Banyan Books and Sound, Canada's spiritual and healing resource since 1970. Our podcast producer is Jacob Steele. The show is edited by Abdo Habani. And I'm your host, Ross McKeechee. Watch all our conversations on YouTube by searching for Banyan Books or listen on your favorite podcast platform. Please subscribe, follow, like, and leave your reviews and comments. We love to hear from you. For all our live events, books, and more, visit us at banyan.com.